TIM Podcasts. The contents and views expressed by individuals in this podcast are not necessarily those of the companies for which they work. Due to the coronavirus lockdown, the CIM podcast is currently being recorded via web conferencing. We apologise for any issues with the audio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 19 of the CIM Marketing Podcast. It's a very special episode because it is the last episode of term, the last episode of the season, and uh, the pubs are back open, the sun is shining, and England are struggling in the first test. You could almost convince yourself things are getting back to normal. Uh, But just to bring some celebrity into the new normality, we have with us today the editor of Catalyst, Morag Cudderford-Jones. And we have James Farmer, who has been on many of these podcasts. And James is going to be pitching in with a little bit of a review of the year before we break for summer uh, ahead of our return for season two in September. Now, Morag, welcome to you. James, welcome to you, sir. Hello, Hello Ben. Now, the final issue of Catalyst, Morag, is this correct, comes out uh, just before uh, the children break up for uh, the school holidays. And it's a um, it's a big one, isn't it? It's a great one. Well, hopefully so. We've got a lot of good stuff in there. There's been some really interesting uh, revelations. You know, Ben, I've been in and around marketing for a decent slice of time now. I'd hesitate, I'd hesitate to say it, but probably around two decades worth of marketing. And sometimes you can feel that there's something, nothing new under the sun, but I learned a lot from speaking to a lot of people in in this issue, some really interesting stuff around hype brands, which I think can often be dismissed because they're seen as a bit outlier, they're not mainstream, Um, but also learning a lot about how brands interact with our lives on a really fundamental level. I think it's often said that brands trying to engage deeply or being part of your life can be viewed a bit cynically but I think we found this edition that actually they really do have a powerful role to play if done properly and I think there were some really good examples in there of exactly how brands have managed to play a really important part in forming behaviors that are good for us. This is the cover story isn't it you're calling it brand knows best and uh, you've got this fantastic device on the cover with a sort of spoonful of sugar and Mary, uh, a silhouette of Mary Poppins. They, uh, it impress- is. I, 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 I hate to think everyone at Sim may have been cursing me for that image. And seeing as everyone's wandering around the building, singing a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. It took me a while to get rid of that from the internal jukebox, I can tell you. An earworm. Did you get an earworm, James? Uh, it did, unfortunately, yes. I didn't realise it was quite exactly your uh, fault, Morag, but um, yes, it was It was stuck in my head for many a moon. <laughs> May have been a joint effort, but you can put the blame on me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the, implication, the implication is that, um, exactly that though, isn't it? That actually, uh, uh, not, it's not always the consumer leading the brand. Sometimes, quite often perhaps, it is the brand leading the consumer. Indeed, it's the brand leading the consumer. And it's also sometimes done out of pure altruism because that does increase brand favorability. But there are a lot of occasions where brands are under pressure from regulators, from governmental bodies, by the very nature of the things they produce. We can think about the soft drink taxes, for example, the sugar tax. 
Um, we can think about uh, insurance companies that have to ensure their customers drive safely, drive carefully. Alcohol companies who clearly want to sell their product, but also cannot be seen or cannot encourage uh, their customers to drink um, inappropriately. And that's one example that we have in the article of Perno Ricard, uh, very well-known global drinks brand, clearly with many stakeholders involved, wants to perform well from a revenue perspective. But to perform well from a revenue perspective, you'd assume they therefore have to sell as much alcohol as possible. But then there's the tension, obviously, of making sure people drink responsibly. You don't want people to binge. You don't want people to drink excessively. And you don't want people to drink at an inappropriate age. One of the examples was Pernod Ricard, obviously a big alcohol brand. It has to satisfy its shareholders. And to do that, it has to sell as much alcohol as possible. Uh, but equally, there are the tensions there where it has to make sure that it's not selling alcohol to the wrong people, i.e. underage drinkers. It has to make sure it's not encouraging people to drink irresponsibly, binge drinking, or indeed drinking too much over a regular period of time. So in South Africa, it launched a premium water brand called 141 Water. It's uh, deliciously packaged in a square bottle to make it stand out from all the other water brands on the shelf. And it's designed to be what they quote as the drink you drink in between drinks. In other words, slow you down, hydrate, make sure you can enjoy your, your long evening without becoming increasingly inebriated. Um, and also one of the other aims is of course to decrease the potential for drink driving as well. So they were, they were careful about where they advertised this as well. But the whole idea of this brand and the reason we put Mary Poppins-esque imagery on the front was this idea of how far can brands go before they start to seem like nanny brands? Yeah. How much will a consumer take from a brand before they go, whoa, it's not your place to tell me what to do? And we thought that was a really interesting tension because obviously there are some brands that have to limit certain things. And I thought the, the COVID response was particularly interesting that... Um, Initially, all around the world, we saw masses of panic buying and irresponsible purchasing. And actually, it turned out that the panic buying wasn't, you know, lots of people going in really stocking up. What it was, it was just a tiny percentage increase, yeah. but it caused the shelves to empty. And it meant that when people who only had a certain period of time, such as NHS workers, to go into the shops or for whom going to the shops was a great effort, like the elderly or infirm, they would frequently make the trip to the shop to find there was nothing there. Because, you know, from the morning restock, it was all gone. And so the supermarkets took it upon themselves to prescribe when you could go to the supermarket. And I thought it was really interesting because that went down really well. You know, the consumers who were effectively barred from going to the shop before 9am, unless you were an NHS worker or elderly, you couldn't go to the supermarket before 9am. Most people just went, yeah, that's fine. I, I completely understand why. I'll abide by your rules. That's okay. So I think that's one example of a nanny brand with a really strong rationale behind it. And um, there was something that was also said in the article that it's about the autonomy bias, mm. that 
we have our own autonomy. We're in charge of our own lives. And when a brand crosses that, that's when we stop believing it. That's when we stop saying, you have the right to tell me what to do. So I found that was a really interesting point in that article. And it, it continues to go through a number of the examples where brands make sure they don't cross that autonomy bias to make sure that consumers buy their message and therefore are nudged into behaving in an appropriate way. It's an interesting point, isn't it, James? One of the greatest hits we've done this year was a, a podcast that you led. You joined as a special guest for, which is Bottling the Essence of the Brand. Um, and this strikes me from what, what Maura is saying. Is there's a fine line between uh, brands being lightning rods for um, good behaviour or, or different behaviour and them sort of being encroaching into people's lives. You, you, you were nodding, nodding sagely when uh, Morag used this phrase, autonomy bias. Yeah, that was the bit of the article that really stuck out for me, actually. Um, so, yeah, glad, glad Morag mentioned that. Um, I think it is really interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it goes into the sort of deep psychology, of which I'm by no means an expert. But, you know, as a marketer, I find it really fascinating about how far brands can go in terms of the messaging and also the type of lifestyles that they try and foist upon their audiences. And um, there's a lovely example in there of Tenzing, who are a natural energy drink, who teamed up with a, a, an app, um, uh, an activity monitor app called Strava. Um, and it was so that runners could find low pollution routes to run in London. And it was, it was, it was nothing more, nothing less than that, but it was something that Tenzing gave to their customers just purely for free to enrich in their lives and to you know to add value to their lives um, and it's obviously very much on brand with that natural um natural ingredients that tenzing has and i think it's it, you know in those sorts of collaborations and in those sorts of messages that they pass on to their customers they're, they're you know they're, they're, they're adding relevant um value uh, and i think that's that's where these brands really win rather than you know, the carrot and the stick is, is another element that the article goes on to talk about, um, which is quite interesting. So, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's about being beyond just a transactional relationship between a brand and a customer. You've got to be sort of symbiotic. Both, both sides need to sort of win. And actually, another little quote that came from the um, founder of Tenzing, which is in the article, which says, if all goes well, you'd have a product that is great for the people who buy it, it's great for the person who sells it, and it's great for the planet, then no one loses. I'm great for the planet. I mean, it's interesting, is it? That if it aligns with the brand, it works, this stuff. If it aligns with the brand, it works. If, it, if, it, if it's somehow detached or, or preachy from the brand, then and it goes across that, uh, cuts across that autonomy bias. It, it, it doesn't work. You know, there's a big uh, piece in the in, in the same magazine, Morag, about ethical consumption. You call it doing the right thing, and I suppose that's the line that we're looking to to tread, isn't it? That uh, you're you're moving a brand in a way that it knows its customers want to be moved. That's right, and it's a very interesting article insofar as it it acknowledges you you get a lot of um, a lot of nonsense can come out of. Uh, marketing reporting sometimes uh, a lot of hyperbole and I'm sure I've been guilty of it in the past as well when you say you know brands really seek customers really seek brands with purpose they really want brands to speak to their values actually I want the nearest sandwich shop because I've only got half an hour for lunch um, so what brands 
what customers actually seek is brands that don't make them compromise too much. And this is where Sarah Duncan, um, the author of Ethical Business, has really nailed it, I think, with her phrase, just the compromised consumer. Um, as consumers, we have values. Do I choose every deodorant, toothbrush, dog food uh, sandwich on the basis of that brand's deeply felt values? Almost certainly not. However, I have a, a, a wide range of issues I'm aware of and a spectrum of brands and company behaviours that to me are unacceptable, uh, acceptable with a caveat and wow, aren't they doing some great stuff. And that compromised consumer is looking for that palatable mix. I was chatting to somebody um, for something entirely different a couple of days ago. And they were saying, you know, when we're talking about sustainability, we can all live these values as brands. But let's face it, we all consume oil. We're still consuming oil. None of us is perfect. So we have to go with what we can do. And so what Sarah talks about in her piece is the compromised consumer is looking for not the brand that is whiter than white, not the brand that is supporting every humanitarian effort going. They're looking for the brand that helps them make as many right decisions as possible. And so when it comes back to that sandwich shop, when you're popping out for lunch, now that we're all gradually leaking back into our offices, and you're going for that salad because we're all trying to get rid of that Corona stone that we've all been, you know, comfort eating our way towards. <laughs> um, we want that salad, but we don't want it in a disposable plastic packet. And we don't want it, want it with a plastic fork in a plastic wrapper. What we'd like is a compostable cardboard box with a bamboo knife and fork and a fully recyclable can with a paper straw. If, do we really need straws, by the way, still? Why do we even need paper straws? But that's a whole different discussion. Um, but we want that. And what Sarah is saying is the sandwich bars that don't do that will only get away with that for as long as the sandwich bar doesn't move in one minute further down the road with a compostable box. Because we'll compromise and walk that one minute further for the compostable box. So she's put brands on notice saying you're getting away with it just now because you're just too convenient. Yeah. And we hold our hands up as consumers and go, we need the convenience. But the moment we can make that equation balance and the convenience comes with the ethical behavior, brands that aren't up to speed will be turned off like that. Right. James, there was a, one of our most popular podcasts this term. I'm not calling it term. It's not a school year, although it, it, sort, of, it sort of mirrors the school year, was yeah. fashion, the fast and the furious. And that is a, a, a classic example, isn't it? Fast fashion, we kind of know it's bad for us or, or, or its customers kind of know it's bad for them, but they do it anyway because it is so convenient for people. Exactly. And convenience often overrides lots of other more um, sort of ethical emotions. I think, unfortunately, you know, everyone lives in, uh, you know, a million miles an hour. They have, you know, their time poor. So it, it, it often you will you will do something knowing that it isn't the best thing to be doing. But just because it makes your life or your day or your, or your lunch break that bit easier. Um, I think, you know, I'm, no, I'm by no means an, uh, an expert on women's fashion, but, um, 
you know what 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 the lockdown has done is made lots of people reconsider their attitudes to lots of things which is you know very much the silver lining of the um, of, of the dreadful situation you know and, and and it'll be really interesting to see what impact that has on fast fashion um you know whether those attitudes uh you know are, are genuine or whether they're just stated um you know i know from speaking to colleagues um and you know and, and friends and family that have you know that are that are women that, that they are they're actively shunning against, um, you know, they, they, I guess it's they've, they've possibly spent a lot of time looking at the volume of clothes in their wardrobes and realised that actually, not only the fact that they don't need a lot of them because they haven't been going to the office and that they've been in homeware, um, which is the same, very much the same with, with everybody, sort of wave of movement around, actually, I don't need as many clothes as I've got. Um, and I think that fast fashion will hopefully suffer from that. You know, interesting that um, on that Fast and Furious podcast, which was recorded back in uh, mid-October last year, there was a lot of talk around Boohoo's dominance and how they're buying up lots of different brands. You know, a matter of days ago, Boohoo have just been um, sort of identified as, 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 although police haven't actually found any evidence, they've allegedly um, uh, aren't paying uh, minimum wage. And also there's been this COVID spike in Leicester, which is one of the, where one of the main warehouses are. But as I, I'll reiterate, police have found no wrongdoing. Um, and, um, I'm, uh, I watch a lot of Have I Got News For You, and I've, I've got Ian Hislop in my, um, allegedly, <laughs> Ian Hislop, allegedly. But, you know, what it has shown is that, you know, um, you know, is is that the price of fast fashion and, and you know is it is it too good to be true when it comes to sort of ethical and sustainable businesses um and business you know commitments i think that is as you know as, as the doing the right thing article touches on that is a quite a long-term commitment that a business has to you know um commit to it you know it goes all the way through to the supply chain and there's something else that ali touched on in the podcast it is something which doesn't happen overnight. Now, I think a lot of businesses at the moment are very short-term focused because they haven't had any revenue coming in for the last yeah. four months. So actually everything is very short-sighted at the moment. It's just about getting pounds back in their bank accounts. So actually it's interesting to see whether the COVID lockdown uh, you know, and lack of sales is gonna um, expedite the move to ethical and sustainable um, practices because of the mind shift that has occurred in, in consumers, or whether it's actually gonna delay it because of the need to get short-term conversion and, and sales in, into banks. Now journalists, are, 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 well, some journalists are, ve are very nervous about being asked to uh, crystal ball glaze, but I'm gonna ask you anyway, Morag, do you think there will be a shift away from fast fashion towards more ethical um, fashion? Um, I don't think there will be a shift away from fast fashion from what I see as its core audience, which is quite young, if not very young, you know, first, first consumers, so mid-teenage to very early 20s, which is the core market, who are... Uh, money poor, uh, very trend aware, and very susceptible to um, peer pressure, uh, as in terms of keeping up with trends, all looking similar, uh, the idea that something is novel, you know, that boost you get from picking up a new t-shirt or a new pair of trousers or whatever. What I think you will see a, a move towards is where brands can offer either 
a more circular economy. So, for example, Marks and Spencers has trialed this in the past where you bring in old clothes, they'll re recycle them or repurpose them and they'll give you a voucher or money off. Um, companies that can flag up their sustainable or their move towards sustainability um, whilst keeping prices low, I think, again, we're going to be price sensitive for some time as well, given the economy. Um, so it's, it's really spinning a lot of plates and finding how they can make that balance work. One of the interesting things I think that's revealed to a lot of us in lockdown is how much we rely and how much we need to rely on that convenience of delivery. So we've all been merrily burning our way through a great deal of uh, carbon by having lots of things delivered to us, mm. whether it's fashion, whether it's from Amazon, whether it's food and groceries. And simply the supply chain hasn't been able to do that during COVID. And so we've got a bit used to how it was when waiting three or four days for a delivery was pretty normal. You know, we'd got to the stage before COVID where we wanted it in an hour if we lived in a city. We literally run out of patience to wait for an hour. It would take us longer to travel to the high street and buy it ourselves than get it delivered. Yeah, so Amazon in, in, in big city centres was doing same-day delivery. And we all know luxury uh, fashion like Netta Porter was also doing same-day mm. It was coming in, wasn't it? It was the new thing, the same day delivery thing. And we have gone back a few steps and we seem to be fairly comfortable with it, don't we? I wonder how long that will last because it lasts very easily when there is no alternative. Yeah. So we stop feeling, you know, we're, it's, it can be like a drug. We're jonesing for the next fix of having something delivered to our door. You take that away, we've gone cold turkey. We're now back to waiting three days for first class post. and that makes you consider before you hit that buy button, do I really need it? Will I have gone off the boil and actually not fancy it in a couple of days? And I think that that currently might be the case. But if you bring back the availability, how many of us now we know we can get it back in an hour or a day will again resist the temptation going, oh, I really fancy it now. And because I can have it practically now, oh, go on, let's you know, it's the ultimate impulse buy, isn't it? Oh, James, that's great, though, isn't it? That's a great line, isn't it? Going off the balls at a fashion high or a retail high. We don't want to break the high. We, we know we're going to get it quickly. If we don't know we're going to get it quickly, we buy less, but we might soon be able to buy quickly again. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a really interesting dynamic, isn't it? And I think, it, you know, a crystal ball would be, would be awesome at the moment. Um, <laughs> I think lots of different scenarios could well play out. I think, you know, as, as, as I said on, um, on on the previous podcast um, a couple of weeks back, I think you just got to, as a marketer, you've just got to stick to the basics, you know, and, and, and really listen to the audience and open those channels of communication again to really, you know, ensure that you are um, relevant and resonating with, with their changing mindsets and, and attitudes. Um, I think that, you know, that therein lies the uh, the way forward. I think it'd be wise though to be wary of everything just disappearing and they're suddenly becoming this. We hear this phrase, don't we? A new normal. I used it, I think, myself at the top of this show. Um, it's not necessarily some of the new normal might be a bit like the old normal. I don't see peer pressure going away for eighteen to twenty-one year old uh, girls, and uh, the ultimate peer pressurizers are influencers. And you've got a lot to say in the new magazine 
Morag Mass, haven't you? Oh, indeed. We, we gave influencers a good run for their money. We went one with the influencers themselves, and then we also talked about where they're influencing and new channels popping up. Um, if we start with, with one feature that we call Believe the Hype, now this, this is maybe what you'd consider to be the uber influencers. So we talk about influencers as being either people with you know, really fancy Instagram feeds and they, they spend a lot of time posing delightfully on their bed with an artfully curated cup of herbal tea and a beautiful tray um, who have a few followers. Then you've got the celebrity influencers, the Kardashians comes to mind, uh, who can really, they have a lot of financial pulling power as a brand themselves. You know, brands are begging them to feature them, not the other way around. Uh, but I think we're starting to see a maturing of that audience. And people really want, you know, while they look, scroll through their feeds, it's been talked about when people ask for copy for these things, they want something that's thumb stopping. So there are now clearly so many of these potential influences that people are scrolling wildly through them. And it has to be really standout original for it to be thumb stopping. Um, and so in Believe the Hype, we're looking into what really attracts the people who are really into trends. You know, it's not good enough just to have lots of followers. In fact, for, for the hype brands, they're almost anti-followers. They, they really, you know, they, they can only sell 200 variants of a t-shirt. That's it. They can't make any more money. And when I was looking into this feature, that was one of the abiding questions was, if you are so unique, how do you make money? I mean, the t-shirts or whatever are a fixed price. That's it. You've run out of things to sell. Um, and so we spoke to one of these hype brands, which is Jeff Staple. Now, it's probably also not fair to call him a brand, although he is. His real name's Jeff Eng. But um, he's a consultancy and he's a designer. So he's really, you know, he's, he's got, he's got the, the, the brand chops to be talking about this. He's not just somebody who's pitched up and a lot of people think is quite cool. Um, and his influence is about being in touch with what real trendsetters want, about knowing where the next trends are before they've come up. And that's why people are watching him because he can show them what's going to be the real next cutting edge thing. And so he leaps onto that cutting edge thing and then brands want to leap on it and work with him as well. So I guess in a way he is one of the most sustainable influencers because he's not chucking out. Yes, it's a trend that may, you could argue maybe over in six months because he's so at the cutting edge, but it's also so unique and so limited edition that it's covetable. And once you have one of his collaborations, that's a collectible, not just a trend. And I can see that I think the genuine influence trendsetters are going in that direction rather than the shifting units direction. It's interesting, isn't it, James? There has been a, a marked change in landscape in terms of the use of influencers. Uh, we recorded, again, one of our greatest hits this year was um, a, a podcast in which we invited a, a, a lady called Emily Knox from Took Agency. Um, and uh, it was a great uh, show and really, really brought down to you that actually a lot, in a lot of cases, the influencers uh, held much, if not all of the power and the agencies were sort of, uh, to some degree, running around after them and trying to 
manage their egos and their uh, uh, the way the scatty way that some of them ran their diaries. Actually, since uh, this uh, virus crisis has hit, um, we've discovered that influencer use is on the way and in, in quite a big way. And it's fallen by 37%, I believe, um, uh, since uh, spring of this year. And I mean, again, I don't want to ask you to go into your crystal ball, but it, it, there could be a change in nuance, if not an overall shift, uh, medium term, do you think? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, absolutely, there was that 37% drop and, and, and equally, um, Instagram influencers using the hashtag ad um, has decreased by 30%. So it's interesting to think why that has happened over over the lockdown. Um, there's no immediate, obviously, uh, singular reason. Um, I think trust still continues to be a, a real challenge in the influencer world. Um, um, and uh, you know, I think it is that putting 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 your brand in their hands is is quite a quite a leap, really. Um, I, I find it really interesting the Staple and Sprite example in the um, in the believe the hype article in Catalyst, um, which you know for me was around you know sort of niche and exclusive um, elements of Staple coming together with a, a more famous and large scale and wider reach. Um, Brands such as Sprite, um, you know, to, to 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 bring that proposition to market, and I think it works similarly for products as it does for for people, really. And you know, you can almost replace Sprite with an influencer. So you know, a product, a, a brand will use um, a, 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 an influencer who has that wide reach um, to to bring a different message to a different audience in a different way to sort of expand their um, their their remit. Um, so I found there's some really nice sort of similarities between the um, the hype and and the influencer. Um, I think one of the interesting points that Ali made in the uh, in the influencer class was around she doesn't necessarily perceive the influencers that she follows to be influencing her life or her purchase decisions. Oh, um, I think influencer itself is probably a name which isn't doing the, the category any good at all, unfortunately. Um, so I wonder whether it needs a bit of a, a, a you know a brand overhaul itself. Um, but there was a, there was a really nice line in the overcrowding the platform, um, which which talks about um, emotional, contextual, and conversational commerce is def- is a defining trend for the future. You know, and I think in times of depression and both you know emotional and financial and and crikey, the, the financial depression is is uh, building steam at the moment. You know, any platforms or experiences that cultivate and share entertaining content, I think, are really going to thrive. And it was that point; it was the entertaining element of the content that influencers share that was what Ali was sort of using as her rationale as to why she follows these people. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, whether whether influencers do continue to play a role and actually, what what are they influencing? Are they influencing positivity and mindsets, or are they influencing? Um, you know, Joe Wicks, I think you could say, is an influencer. You know, so these homebodies that gets talked about in the article. So, what, you know, what what do we mean by influencing? What do we mean indeed? It's three reboots, isn't it, for today? Reboot from, um, in terms of influencers, as entertainers. Reboots of fast fashion to slightly less fast fashion to something slightly, slightly more ethical fashion, yet still remaining in that convenience slot. 
Um, and, you know, a reboot where brand doesn't always know best, but it might want to lead us gently to somewhere we want to be. It's a fantastic magazine. Um, and I do commend it to all of our listeners. Uh, if you don't, if you're not already a CIM member, then do join up and you'll get that magazine um, every quarter. Um, if we've come to the end of our uh, session today. Um, we've come to the end of our first season of these uh, podcasts. Please, if you haven't listened to all of the podcasts, do go back and to listen to some of them. I was listening to the Christmas one very incongruously yesterday for some reason. I don't know why. It's been fantastically entertaining, even though it's now uh, the middle of summer. Um, and leave some reviews for us, please, on Apple Podcasts. Um, sign up on Spotify um, and any platform of your preference. Follow us on social. And um, we'll join us back in September for season two. Uh, it's been a great uh, first year of the podcasts. And we hope to see you all again. Finally, thank you to my guests, Morag. Thank you very much for today and James. And we'll see you back in the early autumn, I hope, at some point when we meet again. Happy summer. Thank you. CIM Podcast.